If you read your Bible much, and I hope that you do, you will recognize, especially in the Old Testament, that there are some unusual stories there, odd stories. And there are some things that God asks His servants to do that seem odd sometimes and unusual. For example, God told Noah to build an ark on dry land. This big ship, nowhere near a sea. God told Abraham to leave his homeland with no idea in the world where he was going. God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And Abraham couldn't figure out why he was the child of promise, but he decided he would if that's what God wanted. Of course, we're grateful that God changed that. God asked Moses to lead the the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. And even Moses thought, God, that's crazy. Well, today in our text for this morning, there's another one of those strange and odd stories. One that we're going to look at in just a moment. God even asked Isaiah once upon a time, the prophet Isaiah, to go naked and barefoot for three years as a sign against Egypt and Ethiopia. I think I'd have rather built the ark myself. (laughs) But I certainly wouldn't have wanted to face what the Israelites had to face in Numbers chapter 21. That's our text. Verses 4 through 9, the Israelites had come up out of Egypt. God had led them all the way. God had provided for them. God had taken them to the very brink of the promised land. But after scouting it out, they came back afraid. At least 10 of the 12 of the spies did. Oh yes, it was a land flowing with milk and honey, but there were big people there and there were fortified cities there and and they were too afraid to conquer that land. And so we find ourselves where we are in our text this morning. And if you're able and willing, I would invite you to stand with me as I read God's Word for us. The Bible says they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake, put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Thank you. Please take your seats. I want to look at this story today in a chronological fashion, beginning with disobedience, moving to the death that resulted, and finally the deliverance that 
came by God's provision. It's been said that there are three ways in this world to get anything done. You can do it yourself, you can hire somebody to do it for you, or you can prohibit your children from doing it. God seemed to have had the same problem with His children, the children of Israel, that we sometimes have with our children today. There was a streak of disobedience that ran through their experience. And their initial disobedience, of course, had been their refusal to conquer the land of Canaan by turning away from that, what God had led them to, what God had promised them. Now that was an act of disobedience on their part against God. And they turned away, of course, because they were afraid, afraid of the battles they would have to fight to take the land. In fact, they were ruled by their fear. They were afraid of the peoples in the north, in Canaan, in the promised land, because they had come up from Egypt. They were headed to the north, and they were afraid to keep going, even though God had given them a, a, a victory in the Negev against one group of the Canaanites. And the odd thing is they had this victory and then instead of proceeding on north, they turned around and went south because they were afraid of going north. They couldn't go west because that's where Egypt was. That was back into slavery. And they couldn't go east because that was Edom. They'd already asked the Edomites for permission to go through their country. They were hoping to get around maybe on the eastern side of Canaan and take it from there. But the Edomites denied them permission to come through. They told them and warned them that they'd better not come on their land. So they, the only way their fear would let them go was south in an attempt to go all the way around Edom and get there that way. Their fear ruled them. It paralyzed them. Fear can do that. If we are too afraid to trust God and to do what God asks us to do, we're destined to fail just as they were. There's a famous saying of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. You remember that from the history books or from the recordings? The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And for a long time, I thought that he said that in the context of World War II, but no. He actually said that in his first inaugural address in 1933 in the midst of the Great Depression because that had come about as a result of fear. The runs on the banks and all of that took place because everyone got scared. They were afraid they were going to lose what they had. We've seen a bit of that in our own experience in the last couple of weeks, haven't we? People are afraid. The Israelites were afraid. And they failed to recognize that fear is contagious. It builds on itself. The more afraid you get, the more afraid you are. And their real fear was the fear of trusting in God. The fear that God would not protect them after all. But Oswald Chambers, the devotional writer, said once, When you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And they were afraid. When, when God 
calls us, he asks us to trust him enough to act in spite of our fears, to move forward in spite of our fears. Not recklessness, but fearlessness. They are different things, and the Israelites were afraid. They were unwilling to trust God. And so they grumbled and they complained. What worse sin is there, do you think? God, God is, is uh, hateful of grumbling and complaining. There is nothing worse, I don't think, in the ears of God than grumbling and complaining. Verse 4 says, the people grew impatient on the way. Now what it literally says is, the spirit of the people became short. They became short. Their tempers grew short. It was hot out there in the desert. There was no bread, no water. And the manna that God was giving them, they got tired of. They began to take it for granted, as we do of God's gifts from time to time. And so they complained. They were angry. They were testy. But their anger was misdirected. They blamed God. They blamed Moses. But their circumstances were their own fault, were of their own making. In Tampa, Florida, there's a fellow named Antonio Valdez Jr. who got a ticket for driving his car without his glasses on. And a few weeks later, as he was on his way to the court to contest the ticket, he wrecked his automobile because he wasn't wearing his glasses. Now the Israelites were in the same situation. They had wrecked themselves because they weren't doing what God had asked them to do. They weren't obedient. They were instead disobedient. And instead of blaming themselves, they blamed God. They blamed Moses. Do you ever blame others or God for trouble that you've gotten yourself into? Rationalizing your sin, your disobedience, and blaming God for it? God never rejects someone who takes personal responsibility. That's a part of maturity. If they take responsibility for what they've done, if they own up to it, if they confess it, if they acknowledge it, God hears and God is pleased. Well, their real sin is failure to trust in God. And they ask, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? Their disobedience was rampant. And what is the result of disobedience? Death. Verses 6 and 7 tell us about the death that came upon them. Now people will ask the question, does God punish sin? I've been engaged in dialogue with someone for the last several months. Someone who is asking that question. Does God punish sin? Because those who have betrayed him, those who have wronged him, seem to go on without consequence, without punishment. And he wants to know, does God punish sin? If not, what's the point? Is God even there? And so on and so forth. And I have to admit, sometimes it doesn't look like God punishes sin. The wicked often appear to get away with their wickedness. Even Jeremiah, the prophet, asked God, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Because in truth, we want God to punish sin. Because we want to believe in justice. 
One of the reasons that true crime shows and podcasts are so popular, I'm convinced, is because we want to see justice done. Too often we don't. But we watch those things hoping that they'll catch the bad guy and they'll, they'll, they'll put him away, that justice will be enacted. We want justice to be done. And people, whether they believe in God or not, they want to think that the universe is somehow just. And I'm here to tell you it is just because God is just. Even if it may not appear so in the moment. There will be a payday someday, as R.G. Lee's famous sermon repeated again and again. It may not be today or tomorrow or next week or next year or your lifetime. But there will be a payday someday. And the final end of sin is death, both physical death and spiritual death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And it is a just penalty. It is a just judgment. In fact, it's why Jesus had to die on a cross to atone for our sins. It's why there was no other way. I want to read a few verses for you from Romans chapter 3. Where the Apostle Paul writes, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The only way for us to be saved was for our sin to be atoned for, for justice to be done. And Jesus accepted that justice on the cross for us. Yes, God is just. And yes, the Bible indicates that God punishes sin. He punished the sins of the Israelites with a plague of poisonous snakes, verse 6 says. Now you may say, wait a minute, pastor, poisonous snakes. In fact, the King James Version says fiery serpents, venomous, painful. Why would a God of love in the New Testament inflict that on anyone, much less his, his children, his Israelites, his people? Why would, why would that happen? How can that line up? I can tell you. It says both in the Old Testament and the New Testament... The Lord disciplines those He loves as a father, the son He delights in. A parent who fails to discipline a child does not love that child, is not thinking in the best interest of that child. But a parent who loves this child will discipline this child and help this child learn to control himself or herself to live successfully in this world. God loves His children and so He disciplines them. This punishment out there in the desert was God's discipline on His ungrateful children to try to get their attention. And what a punishment it was, these fiery serpents, these venomous snakes. I, I don't know about you, but snakes give me the heebie-jeebies. I don't like snakes. And whenever I, whenever I hear snake or think of snake, I, I, I think back to that old movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark. You remember? Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, he has to go down in this well of souls or something and he drops that torch down in there and it's just crawling with snakes. And he says, why did it have to be snakes? 
That's what I'd have been asking out there in the desert. God punish us, but why did it have to be snakes? Well, those snakes were serious. They were painful. They were deadly. And God did it for a reason. C.S. Lewis has written, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God shouts to us in our pain. We have no choice but to, to listen, to hear what God is trying to say. And to the Israelites' credit, they did hear. Their pain caused them to reflect and they recognized what they had done in questioning and complaining about God and about Moses. And so they acknowledged and confessed their sin. They asked Moses to pray for their deliverance. Many centuries later, a promise would be recorded in Scripture that says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Israelites did the right thing. They confessed their sins and asked for deliverance. Too many people today pray and ask for forgiveness without acknowledging their sins without recognizing their sins, without confessing those sins. Norman Vincent Peale tells a, a story about when he was a boy, something that happened that he never forgot. It seems that he found a big cigar and he slipped into an alley and lit that cigar up and decided he'd try to smoke it. Now, he didn't like it, it didn't taste good, but it made him feel very grown up until he saw his father coming toward him. And so he took that cigar and he hid it behind his back and tried to act naturally. And when dad arrived, he tried desperately to distract dad's attention. He pointed at a billboard for a circus that was coming to town. He said, Dad, the circus is coming. Can we go? Can we go? Huh? Would you let me go to the circus, Dad? And his dad responded with something that Peel never forgot. His dad said, Son... Never make a petition while at the same time trying to hide a smoldering disobedience. <laughs> the Israelites recognized their sin. They didn't simply ask Moses to pray that God would deliver them. They confessed. They said, we've sinned. We did wrong when we complained against God and against you. Pray to God that it would stop. And that's when God gave them a way to be saved, to be delivered. That's when deliverance comes in the story in verses 8 and 9. Moses prayed for the people. God told him what to do so the people could be delivered from death. And it was a very strange instruction to fashion a bronze snake and put it on a pole and raise it up high so that those who were bitten could look to that snake and live. Now, there's several important things that we don't want to miss in this story before we wrap up. One is, it was God who provided the way for them to escape. They did not rescue themselves. It was God's doing. And the symbol of that deliverance may have been designed especially so they would recognize it was God's doing and not their own. This snake on a pole... How can that possibly help us? 
That might have been the natural response. The reformer John Calvin said, A mode of preservation was chosen so discordant with human reason as to be almost a subject for laughter. God, what do you mean? We're supposed to look at this snake on this pole? Are you kidding me? But Raymond Brown in his commentary says, When those who looked at the bronze serpent suddenly began to recover from their raging fever, nobody could doubt that the Lord alone was their healer. Now unfortunately, as the centuries passed, God's people began to forget that. They began to idolize the symbol. They were burning offerings to the the symbol, the bronze snake. And so Hezekiah, in his spiritual reform, seven centuries later, had to destroy that bronze serpent because the people had begun to turn it into an idol. But out there in the desert, in that snake-infested wilderness, these people knew that their salvation came from God and God alone. But their sin still had consequences, didn't it? The snakes did not stop biting. Those bites did not stop being painful. But the ultimate penalty of death could be avoided if they trusted in God's provision for their sin. This snake that God had established, that God had given them, that God had provided for them. And they did have to trust God and act on their faith. Wherever they were in the area, if they were bitten by a snake, they had to travel to wherever that bronze snake was and actually humble themselves to look to it in order to save their lives. They had to exercise their faith in God's provision for their sin. And God promised the people, anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. Now the most important point that we need to take from this passage and God's reason for doing what He did here, strange as it may seem to us, it doesn't become clear until nearly 1,500 years later when a curious Pharisee under the cover of darkness, Nicodemus, went out to have a conversation with Jesus. And if you remember, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. And the very next verse is the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus knew this passage we've been studying today and He knew it well. And He knew why God did what He did. In the Gospel of John, this lifted up terminology is a reference to the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was willing to be God's provision for our sin. The bronze serpent on that pole that saved the Israelites from death in the desert is a picture of the crucified Christ who saves from eternal death everyone who will look to Him in faith. That's the point of this story. This is what God was doing. Just as that strange bronze snake was God's provision for the sin of the Israelites in the desert, Jesus Christ is God's provision for our sin 
that we might be saved from the death that inevitably results from disobedience and sin. You can live today if you will look to Jesus Christ in faith. Let's pray together. God, we have all been bitten by the the poisonous snake, the poisonous serpent that, that tempted Eve in the garden. We have all fallen prey to sin that will destroy us, that will deliver us to death. We suffer from an incurable malady that can only be atoned for by your justice. And you have provided an atoning sacrifice for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for taking for granted your blessings and your provisions in our lives. Soften our hearts. Give us the ability to hear your whispers so that we don't have to be experiencing your pain to hear you. God, draw us to Christ. Jesus said, If I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And so I pray, God, you would draw us to you in this time. For Jesus' sake, amen. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And if you have a decision to make today for Christ, I'll be waiting at the front to receive you. You can be saved. You can live. You can escape the ultimate penalty of your sin if you will look to Jesus Christ.